Let's just open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in to our our material for this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come this morning, it's uh, it's really a privilege to be able to gather and to, to talk about matters of your word and particularly matters of purity and what it means to be a godly man and to to guard our hearts and our minds um, from immorality and to walk in the newness of life that you provide in Christ. We pray that you would forgive us where we fall woefully short in so many areas and that you would help us to be strengthened by, by your spirit through your truth to really put off sin and to renew our minds and put on righteousness. And pray this morning that it would be an, an edifying time and that as we discuss these things and meditate on these things, that you would use it as a tool to, to ground us as men of your word, uh, who lead our families well, who are leaders in the church and in the world uh, for the glory of Christ. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you weren't with us last time, um, I sent out the recording of, of that lesson. I won't be able to go back through all of that, of course, but we're in the middle of uh, a study on a passion for purity. So we did the first lesson on the command for purity, and just looking at the fact that the scriptures are very clear that we're commanded to walk in sexual purity as as believers. And you know, it's no coincidence that the scriptures deal so specifically and frequently with the issue of, of sexual sin. Uh, it's pervasive, not only in our culture, but really in every culture since the fall. It's been an issue that man has has had to deal with and that fallen man has has pursued. And so if, if we're going to be men who are characterized by purity, who are able to lead our families and be leaders in, in Christ's church, then, then we have to be characterized by purity. And by God's grace through Christ, that is possible. Um, I, I think a lot of men have just resigned themselves to, this is how it is and I'll, I'll always struggle with this. Uh, because it's so pervasive in our culture, and and that's just not true. Uh, the Bible gives us not only the command, but the resources then to grow and obey that command. And so that's what we want to really begin working through. There are four parts to this series. The first one we dealt with, the command for purity. Today we'll talk about the standard of purity. It's important that we not only understand that God says that we should be pure, but what does He mean by that? And making sure that what, what our minds think of when we think of purity and what God intends are the same thing. And then we'll talk in coming weeks about how do we actually flesh that out and walk in purity. So we won't get into a lot of the nuts and bolts today of, of what do you do when you're struggling with sexual sin. We will do that next time. Today I want to set that up by just looking at the standard and making sure that we understand it accurately. So really, as we saw last week, God calls every believer to walk in sexual purity. It is one standard for all of us. And we're going to look at that because if we have the wrong understanding of God's standard, we'll fall into one or two extremes. On the one hand, if we underestimate God's standard of purity, then our conscience may, may commend us when it should condemn us. And the, the opposite is also true. If we add to God's standard and create our own standard, we could be condemning ourselves and our conscience when we should not. And so what we want to know is what is God's standard? And I think sometimes, uh, particularly younger men, but, but all men can be tempted with this, to, just to think that it's, it's important to have a standard, but they don't really look to God's word for the standard. So they come up with a standard and they try to live by it, but it's not necessarily a biblical standard. I was thinking about that with in my teenage years at, at our church, we went through something called True Love Waits. Anyone ever heard of that program? It's a popular program, particularly in Baptist circles when I was a, a kid. And there were some good things about the program. The general idea was to make a commitment to remain sexually pure. That's a good thing. We should encourage that. But the, the issue was it focused almost exclusively on not having sex before marriage, which is, of course, a good thing. We should focus on that. But what it did then is it created in the minds of of young people this idea that that was the standard, and essentially, as long as you weren't doing that, everything else was on the table. Now, that's not what they meant. No one ever said that, but as teenage 
boys. That was the interpretation that came from such an emphasis on just don't have premarital sex. And, and I, that, that's one example of how we can come up with a standard and, and, and yet it not be God's standard. And there were some, some strange things that came out of that time. I remember um, there was a, a group from another church, a, a church that, that I wouldn't recommend. You'll see why in a moment. But they, they would, the youth guys would meet with their youth pastor at Waterburger before school once a week, and several of us knew they did that. I, I never went to that because it wasn't part of my church, but I heard and, and saw an article that the youth pastor passed out to these, these young guys uh, basically on, on the issue of masturbation and, and said that it was normal and, and that guys should practice it and that that was okay. And so this spread out from that group to all the guys in the school that, that claimed Christ and say, hey guys, this is, this is okay and God commends this and this is a good thing. And so that was sort of the, the culture that came from, hey, obviously sex is bad, but you know, other things are, are on the table. Um, I, I can't even imagine what that may have caused, the damage that caused in those young men's lives as they took in that false teaching and then carried that into their marriages and their lives. Like I can't even imagine the destruction that it caused. But I've, I've known guys on, who have prided themselves on the other side that they've never kissed a girl before they get married. And yet I know, because they've told me they look at pornography regularly. So we have this dichotomy of, I'm pure, I've never, never even kissed a girl, and yet in their private life, they're viewing pornography. Others take pride in the fact that they've never looked at pornography, but they do admit that they regularly undress women in their mind all the time. And, and there's, a, there's a, an issue there as well. I'm, I'm saying all these things just to help us understand that it's easy for us to create standards in our mind and our conscience feel clean when, in God's eyes, we're far from the standard that He set for us. So I want to help us avoid that by, by being careful not to just cherry-pick verses to support whatever standard it is we want to create, and to break down God's standard in a way that we can, can think about it rightly and apply it to our, our lives. So that's the goal. The goal is to understand what is God's standard and then apply that to how we live life. So I've kind of taken what the Scripture says about sexual purity and broken it down into some categories. And uh, I don't think any of these things, if you've ever studied this at all, are going to be necessarily revolutionary. But I hope they are good reminders for us and an opportunity for us to hold each other accountable in these areas in our, in our lives and in our marriages. But as we look at the standard for purity, the first area that the Bible discusses is sexual purity with our physical bodies. Sexual purity with our physical bodies. That's where I want to begin. And to look at this, turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 9 down through verse 20. Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one in spirit with him. Flee immorality. 
Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack there, but he begins by going through this, this list of sins that deal with sort of the gamut of sexual sin. And then he goes on to talk about the importance of our keeping our bodies from sexual sin and really seals the deal at the end there in verse 20. He says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That I love that phrase, you've been bought with a price. It's important for us to understand and remind ourselves, men, that we are twice owned by God if we're Christians. We're owned by God as His creatures. He created us. And we are owned by God because we're bought by the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, our bodies don't belong to us, and we are not free to use them in any way that we desire or see fit. But we're to work hard to bring our bodies under control and discipline ourselves to use our body only in the ways that God says are permissible and holy. So the bottom line is, if we just were to walk through each of those types of sin that are listed, basically, if you put it in a nutshell, he's just saying every form of physical sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is sexual sin. Right now we're dealing with the outward manifestations of that, but we'll move on from that in a moment. He mentions fornication, which of course is just sex outside of marriage. He says, nor idolaters, which in context he's probably dealing with the sexual sin that was often associated with idolatry at that time. Uh, Nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Both of those deal with different sides of the homosexual relationship. He goes through really in, in great detail for our benefit that all of these things are, are off the table for the Christian and displeasing to the Lord. Now, that's just one passage. There are many others. We won't go through all of them, but I do want to look at a couple of other passages. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Not only are we bought with a price, and therefore we, we must honor God with our physical bodies, but Ephesians 5 verse 3 says in another way, it says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Notice that. It must not even be named among you. That, that, that these things are, are, are not even to be considered for the, for the Christian. Turn over to Colossians, just a few pages to your right. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And remember the verse that we studied just a few weeks ago. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. One more. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Four. Hebrews 13, 4, <clears throat> dealing specifically with um, married men. It says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, I realize I'm convincing of you of something that you probably already firmly believed before you came, but I do think it's helpful just to remind ourselves. God doesn't hide about the issues of sexual sin. He's very, very clear, even using multiple different words to describe the different kinds of sexual sin to say men and women, all of these are off the table. Uh, These are not to be a part of our life. But I think it's always helpful to think about why are God's commands God's commands. It's not. It's it's very important for us not to think of God as this this mean ogre who's just out to steal all sorts of fun from us, and he does. He wants life to be drudgery and not enjoyable. I think that's that's the lie of the enemy, right? That's not our God. So if God has these commands, and He does, why? What is His heart behind this? Well, think of it this way: we need to balance the positive with the, the, the negative commands. 
the reason that God has or has has said these things are are commanded is because He has positively ordained a form of sexual activity that is holy and right and good. So when we when we reject and rebel against what God has said is good, rebellion is sin. Rebellion against God's plan is sin in every area, including sexuality. It's not as if God has said sex is bad or that it is unholy. It's that He's given a covenant relationship in which that is holy and good and pleasing in His sight. And when we subvert that and try to pursue it in any other way, that's when it's rebellion against the Lord. So God is not... Uh, not trying to keep us from sexual expression. It's not as if he gave us, as men especially, these strong urges and desires and said, tough, just deal with it. That's not what he said. So these, these are good, but they're to be shepherded into a certain funnel of a relationship that I have created for you in the gift of marriage. One person for life. And that we could go into that because there's, there's so many benefits of, of God's plan and, why, and the wisdom of that. We don't have time to, to parse all of that out this morning. Um, but I think it is a good reminder that if you begin, whether you're a, a single man here or, or a married man, if you, if you begin to feel the temptation in your heart to be angry with God because you're content or discontent with the current state of either your sexual relationship in marriage or the fact that you don't have a, a wife yet, stop and think about, Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Because I think what we don't realize is we fall into the exact same type of temptation all the time. Adam and Eve lived among trees that were fruit-bearing, and they had food galore. They had all that they needed and then some. They, it, it, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what fruit trees and things were there, but that there were plenty of of fruit-bearing plants and trees for them to choose from, and they had their choice. They could pick every day. They could decide, what do, what do I want to eat from? But there was just one tree that God said you can't eat from. And so what does Satan do? Satan comes in, and he, and he, he wants to, to cloud take to put these blinders on of all the good that God has given to them and all the provision that he's made. And he hones in on this one thing that God said, you can't have this. How unkind of God. How well, he's withholding from you. This is a good thing. He's, he doesn't want you to have it. And I think we do the same thing in, our, in, in the area of sexuality, in lots of areas, but when, when we forget that God has not said you shall not have sex. So I think that if Satan were to, to tempt us in this way and similar to the garden, that's how he would say it. God has said that you are not to have sex. So that's not what God said. God said, I have this good gift for you but in this context. And in that context, you're like Adam and Eve in the garden. You, they're, they're, it's good, and there are, it's, there's plenty of provision for the needs that God has given to you. But we tend to focus on what we don't have. So as, as young men before marriage, we, 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 we don't want to be patient and wait for the good gift that God's given, so we seek to go around that. As men in marriage, if perhaps things are not as, they, as we wish they would be in that area, we then are tempted to go again around God's plan and say, God's not giving me enough. This, isn't, this is not the way it should be. And in each case, we fall right back into that, that same sin of putting the blinders on and only seeing what God has said we can't have, instead of focusing and praising God for the good gifts that He has given. I think a passage that really helps us uh, see the balance balance perspective we should have in this area is Proverbs chapter 5. Turn to Proverbs chapter 5. And uh, I love the way he he handles this issue. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, because he bounces back and forth between the warnings of staying away from sexual sin and the benefits of drinking from the well that God has given in in our wife. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. 
Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien, and you groan at and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, How have I how I have hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Then he switches to the positive verse fifteen. Drink water from your own cistern, and fresh water from your own well. It's just such a beautiful, veiled, poetic way to encourage the love in marriage that God has designed. Verse 16, Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His, his own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be uh, held with the cords of his sin. He will, tie, he will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. I think that's a great passage, by the way, men, to, to take your sons to as you train them in thinking of this bal- a balance that, that God has created a good gift in marriage that's to be enjoyed, but it's reserved for that. And anything outside of that, it's not just that it's forbidden, it is detrimental to your soul. Listen to the way he talks about the consequences of the sexual sin of chasing after the adulteress and, and the, the effects of that sin, the devastating effects of that sin. And that, that God watches. He sees all that we do. We're never outside of his, his glance. And he, he warns, don't even go near the door to her house. Don't even, don't even go near. Don't go change your path. Go home a different way so that you don't even go near the adulteress's house. It's not just that God has forbidden it. It's that it will cause absolute destruction. It's like drinking poison. Just as drinking from that well in marriage is like drinking fresh water from a cistern, drinking from any other well is like drinking poison to your soul. Don't do it. Don't be deceived. And young men, if you're here and you're not married, don't think that you can, can get a taste of God's good gift by going at it the wrong way. What you will experience outside of marriage is not God's good gift. It's rebellion. It's not the same thing. It's reserved only for that, that relationship. So don't think that you can go and find it outside of what God has created. What you'll find is rebellion and you'll pay the price for that rebellion. Um, so the big, biblical balance is crucial for us men to understand, and it's also crucial for us to pass on to our children. I think, I think we often, many men have failed in that task, where they either, either don't talk about it with their children at all, out of the fear of embarrassment or not wanting to excite lust or whatever it may be, some, some good motivations, perhaps. But the... the the problem with that is we leave, our, we leave our kids uninformed of how God would have us think in a biblical way about these things. And some parents even go the other extreme where they actually lie to their kids in, in an attempt to, to help God out into scaring their kids into purity. That never works. Um, my dad was in ministry for uh, probably around 40 years altogether. Before he was in a senior pastor role, he was a youth pastor. I remember him telling me a story of, a, of a, a, one of the youth that had come to him and, and, and through the course of, of discussion had found out that basically her, her parents had told her that she could get pregnant just by sitting in the seat that was still warm that a man had sat in. Um, and so you can imagine that caused all kinds of anxiety and fear in this young woman. Um, and, and I hope none of you have done that or anything like that. No man but, left in that church. But it's a, so she stood up everywhere she went. No. Um, uh, but, but you could see how, I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you, 
How would you harm your kids by lying to them in that way? But men, we have to be careful. We may not tell that particular lie, I hope, but we have to be careful not to try to help God out by making the standard more stringent than it is. We, we want our kids to know that, hey, sex is a good thing. You don't have to be afraid of that word or that idea, but it's a good thing only in this right context. And so, yes, anticipate it, look forward to it, but only in that context. And let me help you be a source of accountability, not to pursue it in any other context. Legalism does not squelch sinful desire. It just inflames it. Um, and so that's not the approach that we want to take in our own lives. It's not the approach we want to take in training our children. God's design is good and right. So I bring it up that way because I think it's really helpful for us as we talk about purity. We often just focus on what we can't do and what we shouldn't do, and we have to talk about those things. But we need to balance that with the goodness of God and that He has provided for us in these, in these ways, in, a, in the perfect and right way. God's standard is not harsh or malicious or overbearing. It's good. The reason the world thinks that way is because it is drinking from the lies of the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2. The world thinks God's overbearing in his standards because they're listening to that same voice that, has God said that you can't have? It's, it, it's the same lie as always. So what this reveals for us, men, is that all forms of sexual sin are really at their heart selfishness and self-worship. When you seek to fulfill that desire in a way that's in rebellion to God's plan, what you've done is you've exalted yourself and your sinful desires above God and said, I deserve to be fulfilled. And you seek gratification outside of what God has said. Our physical bodies are to be reserved for God's purposes alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 describes this reality of, of what God and how God intends for our bodies to use in a very helpful way. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 to 5, this is dealing with the sexual relationship in marriage, but it says, "...the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but..." The wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm bringing this up because if, if we're owned by God, and God is the one who's told us how our bodies are to be used and how they're not, I think it's important for us to understand in the context of marriage, even there selfishness is forbidden. We we do ourselves a disservice when we basically take, we refuse to be a part of the world's sexual system, but then we take a worldly mindset into the marriage bed. That We do just as much damage in the marriage relationship. What he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 7 is is we have a, a duty, a responsibility to our wives. And the idea is, when he says that our, our bodies don't belong to us or we don't have authority over them, our, our wife does, what he means is even in marriage, the goal is not self-satisfaction, but the desire to be a, use, use your body to be a blessing to her, to her, and to fulfill her needs, not just seeing her as the object that fulfills all of your needs. Um, that's the biblical standard is humility and selflessness and using what God's given me to be a blessing to my wife. So even in the marriage relationship, it's not about me and getting my needs met, although along the way your needs are met and it's a great gift, but my focus should be on what would be pleasing to my wife. That, that's how God has called us to live, to keep our physical bodies under control. So that, that is a, a summary of what God says about His standard is for our physical bodies. There is a one good and right relationship in which that is okay and, and to be celebrated. Every other form of it outside of that is forbidden. Now, moving on from just the aspect of sexual purity with our bodies, the Scriptures also speak of sexual purity with our eyes and mind. With our eyes and mind. It's not enough just to refrain from actual physical relationships. God cares about what we look at 
and what we think. So we're going to look at that together in Matthew chapter 5. Turn to Matthew 5, a very familiar passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. It says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is such a a helpful passage. And even though it's in the Scripture and it's been here ever since it was written, we still fall into the temptation to think that I'm doing well because I'm not actually participating in things and that somehow the sins of the eyes and of the mind are of lesser value. Now, here's, here, let me just give a caveat. Jesus is not truly equating in the sense of, of that they're exactly the same to actually have a, a physical adulterous relationship and to have a sexual thought in our minds. Um, for example, if, if that was true, then all of our wives would have grounds for divorce, Right. Anyone want to say they've never at one time lusted since they got married, ever? I, I don't think so. Um, so what, what, he's not saying that in actuality they're exactly equal. But what he is highlighting is that they are equal sins of the heart in the sense that we are not exempt in God's eyes um, from judgment just because we keep it between our ears, right? That, that, that God cares about what we look at with our eyes and what we think about with our minds, that God sees the heart, the thoughts, and the intentions, and He holds us accountable for sexual sin far beyond just what we do with our physical bodies. Uh, It doesn't become sin just when it's acted out. It becomes sin when, even when it's acted out or dwelled upon in in our mind. Notice also the text doesn't say anything about the willingness of the other person to be lusted after. I think sometimes we justify lust of the eyes because a woman is dressed a certain way or obviously she's put images of herself out there and so she is inviting this. God God doesn't have that perspective. Women will be held accountable before God for modesty and and how they dress uh, and those kinds of things. That's between them and the Lord and God will deal with that. But He holds us accountable for what we do with our eyes and with our mind, regardless of how a woman dresses or, or what images are available online or in even walking through the mall. Uh, just because they're there does not mean it's okay for us to dwell upon those things. Now, when we think about sins of, of the eyes and of the minds in this arena, I think we know what we're talking about, but just to be clear... It would include things like this. Uh, viewing pornography, obviously, is, is the obvious one. But beyond that, viewing movies or shows that contain graphic sexual images. Looking at, uh, at women you encounter throughout the day with lust in your heart. Listening to music with lyrics that evoke sexual images. Um, reading books, articles, or magazines that describe vivid sexual acts. Um, and then sexually inappropriate daydreams and fantasies that we create in our own mind. All of these types of things fit into this, this idea of guarding our eyes and our mind. A helpful passage that we can think about is, is the words of Job in Job 31.1, where he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? This idea that Job had made a commitment, a covenant, that he would not use his eyes as a, as a means of self-gratification in lust. I would encourage us to have a similar commitment with our own eyes. We have the example on the other side, of course, of King David in 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And we know where it led from there. But that seeing, obviously, was more than just a sight. There was lust and, and desire there that he allowed to grow in his mind that led to actual physical sexual sin. So could you elaborate to us, like, we had this discussion the other night in our small group, um, in our prayer time. The, so just the point of initial look to taking that further within all the context. 
Yeah. First Luke, second Luke. Right. So we we live in the world, right? We're in the world, not of the world. There's it's impossible not to to see things uh, when you're driving down the road and, and you you just happen to see a billboard. You're not you're not looking for it. You're not seeking it, but there it is. That's the moment right there where you have a choice of is this going to go from I saw something that I then turned from, or is this going to go to I'm going to lust after that thing. Uh, I, I, we we have no control over the external temptations that come. Satan and the world system are constantly going to be barrading us with things. In fact, even on the internet, just by accidentally misspelling a word and innocently and a Google search, it can pop up all sorts of things that you didn't intend to see. That in and of itself is not your fault if you didn't do it on purpose. Uh, you have to be careful there. It would guard your heart and make sure that it was a... Was I really seeking that or was I not? But if, if truly you were not seeking that and just a woman walks by and she's inappropriately dressed or there, there's a billboard around the corner and it's, it's, it's something inappropriate or something like that, that's where the choice is made. That part is not sin. I mean, Jesus had that in his life. There were women around. There were, there were prostitutes. There were things, they were, they were, the temptations were there. And what happened was he chose not to proceed after those. If we make the standard that that the first time something comes across your view that that in and of itself is sin, then we're constantly, there's, there's no way that we could fight sexual sin. But it's just like any other temptation. When the temptation is presented, I now have a choice to either turn my eyes and to dwell on what's pure or to take a second look and another look or take that picture in my mind to begin to play it over, over and over. Does that make sense? I do think that's a helpful distinction to make. Um, it's what do you do the moment you realize the temptation's been presented, what's that, what's that next act? And that's where we have to put off, renew our mind, put on. <clears throat> um, and by the way, I, I want to be able to answer questions and talk about things, so don't hesitate to, to raise a hand or jump in if you have a question, because I want to be able to address those. And if we have some time at the end, we can talk uh, even more about those things. Um, but I do want to address this issue and that is sometimes, even with all the biblical teaching and things, guys can be tempted to justify sexual sin in their mind as, as well, it's not really hurting anybody, right? But here's the reality. If you habitually practice sexual sin with your eyes and your mind, it is only a matter of time until you take the next step and you act out on those things. Sin is, is deceptive. It always takes you further than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay. Uh, you can write that down. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. It keeps, it's like a drug that continues to take you to progressively deeper levels. And so don't play with it. Uh, don't think that you can, can keep it between your ears and it's going to be fine and it will never come out because the reality is it will. If you keep harboring that sin, it will push you to deeper and deeper levels. So the command of Christ is clear that with our eyes and with our mind, we're to be guarded and not to be stealing glances or daydreaming and drawing up images in our minds. And certainly we're not to be pursuing that through means like pornography and things like that. Now, I'm, right now, again, we're just going through the standard. We're going to talk about in great detail how to fight these sins, how to put them off if you're in the middle of dealing with some of these sins. So right now, I'm just going through what is God's standard and then we'll deal with how to go about putting them to death and keeping them at bay. But there's a third area, uh, it, which is usually when we think about God's standard, we think about physical bodies and our eyes and our mind. This next category is one that we may not think about as quickly, but it's sexual purity in our speech. Sexual purity in our speech. And for this one, we're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 5. We were there earlier, and we looked at verse 3. But this time I want to look at verse 3 and 4. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 3. says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. 
Let's keep going. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man or who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I notice that verse 4 is bracketed by verses 3 and 5, which both of those verses are clearly dealing with sexual sin. And so verse 4 also is dealing with sexual sin, but it's turned now to sexual sins of speech. He says no filthiness. He's talking about filthiness of, with our mouths, talking about things that are filthy, or silly talk, sexual joking, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So when we think about God's standard for our, our mouths, obviously curse words would be, would be co- covered under this, a filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. But even beyond just cursing, uh, it's a command to guard our mouths from sexually explicit speech. MacArthur says this about this passage. He says, These three inappropriate sins of the tongue include any speech that is obscene and degrading or foolish and dirty, as well as suggestive and immoral. All such are destructive of holy living and godly testimony and should be confessed, forsaken, and replaced by open expressions of thankfulness to God. So, men, if you've ever played sports in junior high or high school, then you know what the atmosphere in the locker room is like, or if you've been in the military or just around men where women aren't present, basically. Um, I remember in the locker room, it seemed like there was this unspoken competition between guys on who could turn the most innocent of phrases into a sexual joke. It was just constant. Um, some have, have such dirty minds and sexual intentions that I don't know if you've ever been talking to someone like this where you're just having a conversation. You say something very benign, something very unsexual, and they come back with a comment where they twist that into something perverted and dirty. Um, that is... That is a danger that, that men face. And if you've been in those atmospheres for very long, that can be a habit that you pick up and then even in your Christian life be tempted to still think that way or even speak that way. What Paul is saying here is that there's no place for it in the mouth of the Christian. Not only are we to guard our bodies and our eyes and our minds, but our mouths should only speak what is lovely, what is pure, what is holy before the Lord. And so we have to truly guard against that. And some of you, uh, most of you, all of you except for me, work in a secular job field. And so uh, this is going to be stuff that you deal with. I've been amazed. It doesn't matter what level of society someone's in. My wife was a nurse, and so she would work with with doctors and people that are very respected in society. And I remember going up and once once and being there to, to talk with her while she was at work and friends would come by our co-workers and once we were away from patients just the things that would come out of their mouth that they felt free to say even in the workplace it was just a reminder that sinful man never progresses beyond these very base sins uh, there is no degree or thing that you can get that takes takes us out of these environments and so we as men as Christian men have to guard our minds um, in our mouths from speaking sexually. I think there's an interesting dichotomy that many Christians try to balance in which they personally don't make sexual jokes, but they have no problem getting their entertainment from shows and things who, who are very filled with sexual innuendo and sexual jokes, as if that's okay. So they, they, while, while they're not physically saying them, they're very happy to laugh and to constantly be putting those kinds of jokes and thoughts in their head. But if we're to be men who live pure lives and live by this biblical standard, we have to guard ourselves against those things. If you, if you take that stuff in and you laugh at that and, and seek that out as a form of acceptable form of humor, it'll just be a matter of time before your brain gets, starts to turn that way, where you're turning everything into a sexual joke. Whether actually you actually say it or not, it's how your mind begins to operate. So we've got, we've got to be very careful <clears throat> about what we're taking in. Well, I think, I think we see that when it's a, a, a full-on sex scene or something like that. It's like, okay, we shouldn't watch that. That's not good for us. But I'm talking about even just the sexual talk and sexual speech that turns your mind to, to rebellion, to things that God has said He hates. We've got to be careful in that area as well. Don't fool yourself into thinking you can take in sexual content and not be affected by it. What um, you go without saying... What's that? It should go without saying that suggestive thought is 
has already been precluded with pattern of thought. Mm -hmm. It's just feeding the desire. Well, the term that comes to my mind is garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just simple as that. Yeah. I, I just think we we create we understand that principle. We create these levels where we we set our own comfortability. Like this isn't affecting me. I can watch this and it won't affect me. Uh, I can I can do I can then take this much and hold it at bay. Is that the way we should should think about the standard though? Like, I would suggest we go at it from the other but from the other the way. The most justified is suggested. I think I think and even in a in the Christian. World, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's easy. Mm -hmm. And it seems okay, cool, sometimes. Or yeah. fitting in, maybe. Right, to make the joke or whatever, yeah. Or to laugh at the joke or to, or, or, or whatever. Um, no, I think it's definitely... These are on a sliding scale. So I think the, we went from worse to to easiest in, this, in that sense. And, but I do think this is the one that's that is sort of the last to go as we begin to cut off old patterns and cut out sexual sin. But I, I wanted to bring this up because it's, I think a lot of people think God doesn't address this kind of speech, but he does here clearly. He says this, this kind of speech is, is not to be a part of our mouths. And here's the, here's the real issue is Luke 6, chap, Luke 6 chapter, or verses 43 to 45 this is what Jesus says. He says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Verse 45, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good, and the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. That's the issue, men, is what, if you want to know what's in your heart, listen to what comes out of your mouth because it flows out. And the more you keep stuffing in there and you just think, I, I can handle it, I can keep it, I'll keep it under wraps, you can't. And one day it's, it comes flying out uh, in a fleshly moment. And what you need to understand is that that's what you've been putting in. And, and, and it reveals the character, the quality of our hearts. And so... That's why sinful speech is such a big deal. It's, it's, it's not just a sin of the mouth. It's a revel, uh, realization of what's truly in your heart. So we want to be men who are, are careful, not only with our bodies, not only with our eyes and our minds, but careful with our speech. Um, because also, what are we doing, especially with anyone, but especially a Christian brother, when we throw out a, a sexual joke, we, we've just now thrown his mind into the gutter as well. And so we're dragging other people down with us. And we, we want to be careful that we don't sin against God or each other in those ways. So as you think about what is God's standard for sexual purity, think of it in those categories. Pure, purity with my body, purity with my eyes and mind, purity with my speech. And so I think it's appropriate for, for each of us to take some time this week and back up and look at those areas Am I pure in the way I'm using my body? Am I pure in the way I'm using my eyes and my mind? And am I pure in my speech? And a good verse for meditation on this issue is the one that we read earlier from Ephesians 5, verse 3. It's a short one. It's an easy one to memorize. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Must not even be named among you. It's, it's an incompatible with the Christian life. And so that, that is the standard. <clears throat> so I think my encouragement is for us to spend some time this week kind of using the plumb line of God's Word and putting our lives up against it to see where do we fall short. And the truth is all of us fall short in, in these areas. where None of us are, are perfectly walking exactly in purity the way that God says. Um, but don't be, don't be comforted by that in the sense of, so don't worry about it. It's... There's always work to be done. Don't ever be lazy. Keep going. Keep striving. You know, excel still more, as Paul says. Keep pressing to deeper levels of faithfulness. And so next time when we get together, I'm going to deal specifically with the nuts and bolts of, okay, now we know it's commanded. We know what the standard is. What do we do? How do we, what's the game plan 
for fighting against sexual sin and winning. So I hope you'll come back for that. But I want to open it for just a moment for questions. Does anyone have a question along these lines that, uh, that I can answer that would be helpful? talked about last week <laughs> and I think this probably this might be in your plan for next time mm-hmm. uh, so if it is I'll that's fine um, but there's there's a lot in the Bible about in this area so let me back up in other areas like for instance anger something I struggle with there are those like you talk about the replacement thoughts i.e. replacement scriptures to think about like the wisdom from above is, is pure and peaceable and love is patient love is kind all those things mm-hmm. um but with sexual sin, there's a lot of what not to do, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of, like you brought up the example in, uh, I think it was 1 Corinthians 7. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a whole, whole lot of that, that, not that I know about in the Bible. Yeah. There's a lot more of what not to do. So yeah, um, that would be, that's the question I brought up. Is yeah. What are some scriptures? Because how, how, it's uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. Uh, we don't talk about it. As Christians, how are we supposed to think about sex? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how are we supposed to think about women that are not our wives? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the focus there? When I see women that are either maybe not Christians, how am I supposed to think about them? Yeah, uh, evangelically maybe. But what are some of the scriptures that that mm-hmm. we can go? Through? Some of those emergency procedures. Yeah, when we have those thoughts, mm-hmm. to 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 flip it and think of the scripture that applies to that. Yeah, um, where where are those? Well, know? I can I can. Uh... I'll give you a, an answer today, and then I'll really, really peel this back, this onion back as we talk next time, because I'll, I'll hit that hard. But the one, one verse that I go to a lot is, is that Proverbs 5, Proverbs 5, verse 15 specifically, where he deals with drink water from your own well, from your fresh water from, from your own cistern. So if you're a married man, which most of you are, so I'm going to deal with that first. If you're a married man, uh, you do have... There are pure sexual thoughts available for you of your wife, right? And so what the put off, renew your mind, put on can go something like this. Uh, a billboard or a woman or whatever is, is there before you that's a temptation to look at. You, as soon as you recognize it, you avert your eyes, realize I've got to put that to death. Renew my mind. God, you've been so faithful uh, to me. Proverbs 5.15 reminds me to drink water from my own sister and fresh water from my own well. Thank you, God. You've given me a well. It's got good and fresh water. Help me, Father, to, to dwell in my wife. Thank you for her. And just start going through things that you're thankful for about your wife. Um, start praising the Lord for, thank you, God, how she, she cares for me. And she's this. What are the best qualities you can think of of her? Fill your mind with them. And now you've just turned your mind away from rebellion to the well that God's called you to drink from. Um, that's just one e- example. But I think it's, it's that pattern of I'm tempted to think that there's something I don't have that I, that I should have. And I said, no, no, it's not. I actually have all that I, I need. God's provided for me in this way. Um, another thing you can do, <clears throat> especially I, every Sunday morning before church, I always pray a prayer that goes something like this. I pray through. This is Paul's, right out of Paul's, from Paul's pen. But... I set my mind up to treat the people I will encounter in the way God tells me to treat them. So Paul says, treat the older men as fathers with, with respect. Treat the younger men as brothers. Treat the older women all as mothers also with respect. And then when it comes to younger women, he says, and treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. And, and so, and so I, I go through that every Sunday morning before I come to church because I'm going to have an opportunity to interact with the body. And you do this every day as you just interact with people. But thinking through specifically, treat them as sisters in all purity. And that means I, I'm proactively planning that how I'm going to think about the people that I encounter and think how, how would I treat a sister? Uh, and I, I wouldn't... And so just beginning to... <clears throat> Turn my mind to, I'm here to be a benefit to them, not to use them for a simple benefit of myself. Mm. And it's just a constant reminder of, of how to put them. So that's a verse you can look at as well if, if you're tempted and say, 
no, I'm, not only am I not going to do that, but I'm going to treat her as a sister in all purity. And so I'm going to do things that are for, for their good, not using them as something for myself. Yeah. Related to that, Dusty, um, how does the church deal with immodest dress young women? Um, it's amazing to me some churches I've been in to see mm-hmm. the dress. Yeah. You know? Well, it's a... Oh, we, we kick them all out of the church, so we don't have to do it. No, um, no, no um, we don't do that. But just as, I think we have to think about it in a balanced way. So when we come to church, we have to realize there's a, a mixed crowd of a lot of things. One, there's unbelievers in our midst, and there are believers. Some of them are deceived, and they think they're believers, and they're not. Um, and some of them know they're not believers, and they're just coming. We also have a mix of believers that are on a, this large scale of, of this renewal process that we've been talking about. Some are at the very beginning steps, and some are much further along. And I think we have to, with that, just as we want to have patience with men who are new believers and are now coming out of patterns of sexual sin and they're trying to learn how to control their eyes and their mind and whatever, we have women who are coming out of the world who have been saved, and they've been taught that the way you dress is to make yourself available and show yourself off. They're, they're having to retrain their heart and their mind in what is modest dressed, and sometimes that takes time for that to catch up in their spiritual maturity. And so the Bible, you know, the Bible doesn't give us a, a standard of modesty in the sense of this kind of shirt and this kind of pants or dress or this kind of whatever it is in that way. Instead, it gives us the heart motivation behind modesty of what is the heart. And so those are issues that just like I'm dealing specifically with this issue among men in our women's ministry, over time, they'll deal with what are the hard issues of modesty. And we'll see the fruits of that begin to filter down through the church. But I think a high view of God and a high view of Scripture helps with all these things because what we're doing is we're just bringing the Word, and the Spirit begins to apply that in hearts as it's needed. And, and so I can't, um, I learned a long time ago, I can't control, I can't control the outcome and, uh, and try to dictate the outcome and make someone understand my understanding of, of modesty or any of those kind of things. Instead, I can just preach the Word and let the Spirit do that work. But I, I think even just having a high view of God and a high view of Scripture and preaching the Word and, and really saying, not only are we going to preach this, but we're going to work hard to live this over time that begins to filter down into the body. But I think when I see a, a, a woman in the church or something and, and she's not dressed, in my opinion, in a way that would be modest, I just try to remind myself that God, we're, we're all in a process of growth. I'm in a process of growth. And I'm not where I need to be yet. Thank you that I'm not where I was. And, um, and to have grace with her. Um, that God can do that work in her heart. So that's kind of how I, I think about it. But I think as the church has gotten away from, you're talking about churches at, uh, at large, as you get away from the preaching of Scripture, a high view of God and a high view of Scripture, worldliness creeps into the church. And so that's where you start to get a higher, high, a higher and higher volume of that kind of thing. And the thing is that the, the truth is that's that's what's going on visibly, but, but you you can also know other things are going on behind the scenes as worldliness creeps into the church. But I think a commitment to the Word of God, a high view of God, and, and sticking to the Word and calling us to obey these things uh, is our best defense against that. Does that answer your question? Anybody it's else? more and more. Society is just in the toilet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so prevalent today. I mean... I grew up in the 50s and 60s and, uh, you know, the sexual revolution and drugs and all that stuff. And I stayed clear of that. I was in the church. But it's, it's, it's so bad. Man. You can't turn a corner mm-hmm. without seeing something. And it's yeah. a constant battle. And Satan's there every step of the way in your life. And you just need to think of Scripture, think of your life, and try to focus in on that uh, to, mm-hmm. to battle this stuff. And it, it, Satan wants you to just eat, you know, bear, uh, just knock you down little by little by little until you mm-hmm. turn away. And it's, yeah. it's just a constant battle. Yeah. But it's just so crap. You can't watch the local news, mm-hmm. you know, or and commercials that come on. It's just, yeah. It's really, really mm-hmm. so prevalent. Yeah. It's tough. 
well, I know some of you guys have to get to work. Feel free to leave. But, um, but yeah, it is, it's all around us and, and only increasingly so. But, you know, I'm reminded, too, that in the – if you've ever – if you've ever seen a, a documentary, or, or I tried to watch one, I made about it a minute in, I had to turn it off, but of, of what ancient Rome was like and what the Greco-Roman culture was like, mm-hmm. oh my word, it's, it's not new. It's very, it, our culture is bad and, and getting worse, but there's a reason why Romans 1 is there uh, talking about this progression of sexual sin and turn to homosexuality. It's because it was happening then, you know, so it's, while it may make it harder in our day-to-day lives to walk in purity or because we're battling it more constantly, um, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves we're in good company. We're not experiencing something that other Christians throughout history hadn't experienced. Yeah. Now, we have with the invention of the Internet and thing, men, men are inventors of evil, and so there are always new versions of the old things. But the old things were there. I mean, they had bathhouses and all these other things that were immoral then. So I do think it's bad, but I want us to take heart that our Christian brothers have fought this fought, fight with us since the beginning, and we can keep fighting. And no matter what the culture throws at us or how far it slides down that scale um, of, of immorality, um, God is still faithful and the, the Word still applies. Isn't it interesting that all these things that we're dealing with, we found them in the Scripture, the, the, describing these, these acts that are being committed in our day. It's like, oh, well, they, they, were, they were reeled into. So just take heart. No temptations overtaking you except what's common to man. And the Lord's faithful. <clears throat> yeah, but I, so I think along those lines, one of the main differences is we now have it much easier to keep it quote-unquote private. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, 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 if you're if you're driving you know down the road and you pass by, you know a strip club and you see your friend's car there, you can you, you kind of know that, right? But yeah. you don't always know what your friend's doing in the privacy of their home office, right? Mm-hmm. So with the with you know technologies, it it's it's more hidden, mm-hmm. and now ultimately it will become unhidden, right? Um, but those those lower levels, it's much easier to hide, and yeah. you know I, I find it especially disconcerting with with the youth of America. You know, mm-hmm. kids nowadays get access to electronic devices at an increasingly younger and younger age, and so those temptations are out there, and you really have to stay on top of that to teach your kids that these things are not acceptable and that these are mm-hmm. dangerous. Yeah, we taught our kids long ago. Even when they started playing with neighborhood kids, hey, if we don't know them that well, you're not going in their house, mm-hmm. right? If they say, "Hey, come look at this," the answer is no. Yeah, right, because mm-hmm. that 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 kind of starts down down that line. Yeah, of uh, and, and once those things are seen and exposed to, it's hard to undo that even from a young age. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it's that it's that hidden part where it begins that has made it so much more difficult today than, you know, what you were talking about growing up in the 50s and 60s, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, my, my, my dad bringing home pornography, and it was, you know, okay, there's magazines and there's videos. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it's, it's not really, quote-unquote, hidden like that. Mm-hmm. But nowadays it can be. Yeah. So you have to be much more proactive. Yeah. And I think it's only, it's only going to get worse as technology increases, right? But my, and so I think we have to, as parents especially, we have to, we can't live in the fog of, well, I don't want to keep up with the times and I don't care about technology and so I'm just going to let that go. For the sake of our, the protection of our kids, we have to know what's coming down the pipe um, and what's healthy for our kids and what's not. The average age when kids see their first porn on a smartphone, 11 years old. Mm-hmm. 11, can you imagine that? A friend, they're, yeah. they're at school, and a friend says, hey, let me show you what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy that age gets younger and younger all the time. And so we can't be, uh, we can't be too careful uh, with our own hearts and minds, but also with our, with our kids. And it starts, 11 is, when you see an 11-year-old, they look so, they are young, but that you just, they look so young to you, you're like, oh, well, that's not even a possibility. Like, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Don't put your head in the sand, you know. 
So we've got to be careful there. Um, yeah. Was that, was, that, was that in First Timothy that prayer that you were talking about? Yes. Um, I don't remember the exact reference. Okay, but, but it's, yes. It's in, but it's there okay. in his in his uh, <coughs> admonition to Timothy on how to think about treat the people in the body. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me pray for us. Appreciate the discussion, um, and I hope you come back next time as we start to talk about how do we proactively kill these sins and and put on righteousness because the Bible has a lot to say about that as well. But let me pray for us, and uh, we'll be done today. Lord God, we thank you for the clarity of your word and that uh, we don't have to wonder what your standards are or what your desires are. Neither do we have to wonder how to seek to live out those standards uh, because you made that clear in your, in your word as well. And, and by the power of the Spirit, we can continually walk in newness of life and grow in our battle against these sins. And pray that you would help us as, as men to be committed to purity, and those of us that are fathers to be committed to protecting our children as well and training them in in the ways of righteousness and the truth. Mm -hmm. Father, help us to to fight against these things and to hold each other accountable in these regards and and, uh, not to let sin have a foothold or to make any provision for the flesh. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, men. Amen.